humans, by nature, we are enamored with power, are we not? Take the world's most powerful computer, the IBM Roadrunner, with the ability to process one billion calculations per second, it is said this supercomputer has the strength of a thousand MacBooks combined. I'm sorry, 100,000 MacBooks combined. It is so powerful that IBM estimates it would take six billion people armed with calculators nearly 50 years to process what the Roadrunner can achieve in a day. It's cost $100 million. How about get that for your kid as they go off to college? Pick up a bottle or a $130 bottle of what they call Sam Adams Utopias. A 54-proof brew is the strongest beer in the world. Just make sure they say you, don't, you drink it slow because one 24-ounce bottle has the same impact on a human as a 12-pack as a of Bud Light. All right? How about Naga Jolokia pepper sauce on your buffalo wings? It will literally not only burn your tongue, it will burn through your skin, and people eat that. <laughs> How about the average rhinoceros beetle? Six-inch bug can lift 850 times its body weight. To, is, that would to equal the power of this six-inch bug, a 350-pound Ryan Kelly who holds the world bench press record of 1,075 pounds would need to max out at 300,000 pounds. That's equivalent to lifting 80 Toyota Camrys. Now here's the deal. This power makes us believe in these products, does it not? These animals, these people, maybe except for the beetle, right? But ultimate power requires ultimate belief. And this morning's text is about power. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ, which proves who he is, which should make us want to believe and trust in him like never before. Because here's the deal. If someone is going to come a first time to redeem sinful people and then come a second time to restore the planet to peace and justice, or to put another way, to come the first time to deliver man from their sin and come a second time to deliver the planet from the effects of sin, they must have unlimited, immense power. That's what this text is about this morning. Think about how much power it takes to sustain the universe. Matter of fact, out of all the things, and I may offend somebody this morning, but it won't be the first time nor the last. I even do it unintentionally. Out of all the things that man has believed throughout the world, throughout the history of the world, Evolution is absolutely, maybe, is the dumbest thing man has ever believed. Because how can you explain a fully functional universe without a power source? I read a long article on Charles Darwin this week in my research. The man who had put forward the thought that man was just an animal an accident of cosmic evolution with no creator 
and with no power source and with ultimately no ultimate purpose. That's what Darwin said about man. He failed, though, to die as he lived. It is written that on his deathbed, with his body heaving and shuddering in agony, as he vomited blood and the red dripped upon his white beard, he cried out instinctively, O oh God, O oh Lord God. Those were his last words before he took his last breath. His friends say he had secretly, in his sickness, wondered that if what he believed was a fantasy. Yes, it was a fantasy. Einstein died a disappointed man in despair because while explaining incredible complex math, he was disappointed he could not find the power source to his complex equations. Think about it. We live on a ball 25 miles in circumference that weighs 500 sextillion tons, yet hangs on nothing as it sits in space spinning 100,000 miles or 100 miles an hour, and we feel nothing because it is in perfect balance. A codfish, and I don't know why I put this in here, <laughs> but I thought, I got to say this. In my research, a codfish can produce or does produce nine million eggs at once. Yeah. If that somehow spurs you to follow Jesus more, I'm so glad. <laughs> the sun has a billion or 500 billion horsepower. And Hebrews 1.11 tells us that God, is the source of it all. God upholds the universe by the word of his power, and this text tells us that Jesus is God. Look with me, or read with me in Luke 8, 22 through 25, this very familiar, familiar story. Verse 22, one day he got into a boat and his disciples with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke and rebuked the, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the wind and the water? And they obey him. Three points this morning. The calm before the storm, the calm during the storm, and the calm after the storm. The calm before the storm. We know that Dr. Luke, has with great precision been showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the power of God. He's shown us through his miraculous birth, through his genealogy, through the power over Satan in the desert, the power over disease, the power over death, the power over the doubt of John the Baptist. And just last week in the fourth uh, the story of the four souls said, the rocky soul represents those who receive the word of God with joy, but in times of testing, they turn away. 
It is the person who says, that's a mighty fine sermon, Jeff, and yet there's no root. Nothing changes. This morning is the time of testing. How would the disciples respond? The last time, remember, we saw Jesus on the water was Luke 5. Jesus was the Lord of the creatures, the fish. This morning, we see him as the Lord of creation. Now, verse 22 tells us it was just a normal day, just a day. But Mark, because there's three versions of this in the gospel, all with a few different details. In Mark's version, Mark tells us exactly what day this is. It's the same day that Jesus was teaching down at the Sea of Galilee. If you remember, all the masses were following him. They were overcrowding him, and he was teaching the parable of the full souls and the, putting the lamp under the bed. Remember Phil's sermon last week. Now, I just got to imagine that Jesus' sermon was better than Phil's, even though Phil's was really good. I just needed to say that. It's always safe to bet that. So, this trip that they're going to take across the lake in this boat happens at the end of that day. And Jesus has been teaching all day, and he says, peace out, I'm tired. His humanity comes into play here. If he would have been on a plane, he would have been sound asleep before the wheels got off the ground. You, you and I have been there. The Sea of Galilee, though, we must remember, is really like a lake. It's 13 miles long, it's 8 miles wide. And if you go there today, you can actually eat at a restaurant called St. Peter's Fish House. How fun would that be, right? This lake is where one side is flat and the other side is absolute mountains. It was the center of life for the Lord and his disciples during the ministry years of Jesus. And during this six-mile trip, Luke tells us Jesus was asleep. Now, Jesus, being God, he knew there was a storm that was coming, but he slept. It was a sleep of trust and a sleep of sovereignty. The Lord of creation is about to become the Lord of the storm. And he chose the ideal place on the planet to demonstrate his power. Now, if you do some research on the Sea of Galilee, you will, you will be amazed, I was amazed, at how much this lake is actually studied by scientists today because it's so unique in how it's laid out. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world, 680 feet below sea level, and at 30 miles north of it are the mountains of Mount Hermon, which are 9,200 feet Above sea level. So add that. Now you're talking about 10,000 mile difference. And this cold that comes over the mountain, the mountain air drops over the mountains suddenly when it hits the lake and it clashes or runs into the warm desert winds coming off the flat side of the lake, as they would say in the $6 million man. Remember that show? He said, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Here, you have a problem, and it's called raging, tornado-like hurricane storms that literally appear within minutes. 
It reminds me of fishing. The only thing I could imagine, I've been outdoorsman. I've been on lakes all over the country and in the outdoors, but on Lake Kiwi at the upper part of South Carolina, fishing for trout one day with a friend in an 18-foot aluminum boat with a V-hull. It was as beautiful outside as could be. And within minutes, and this guy was the experienced fisherman on Kiwi. I'd never been on Lake Kiwi. He said, Jeff, we got to go. And that way off in the distance was a little dark cloud. I said, why? He said, we're about to be hit with a storm. And I thought, he is nutty as a fruitcake, right? I'm like, I've been outdoors. I know there's nothing going to happen here. And literally within three or four minutes, we were driving as fast as that motor would take us on the boat and we're getting hit in the back of the head with wind and rain and nearly didn't make it to shore because the winds were so strong. This is that times 10. What better place when the Lord created the earth for him since he knew this day was coming to create a lake just like this to demonstrate his power. But for now, he sleeps. The calm before the storm. And now we have the calm during the storm. Verse 23b and through 24a. So as Jesus sleep, it tells us in Mark's version, I believe that his head is on a cushion. A windstorm comes down on the lake. It's literal. A hurricane is the word that the text uses. A word picture for an earthquake on water. That's how intense it is. And to say it came down is exactly what it did. It came over the mountains out of nowhere, the cold mountain air clashing with the warm desert air. And as my dad used to say, son, we have a predicament here. <laughs> there was a book that I looked through this week called The Land of Israel. And the author speaks of camping on the banks of the Sea of Galilee under the beautiful clear skies, and within minutes the winds were so strong that it uprooted their tents, and they could hardly walk against the wind. I got this picture of the weatherman during a hurricane. You know how they're, they're leaning in the wind at a 45-degree angle? I always wonder if they're real sometimes. With waves, he said, splashing 30 feet onto the shore. And we need to make note that the people who are making the assessment that this storm is a life-threatening storm, that they're going to die in this storm, they're not tourists, folks. They're not rookies. They're fishermen. It would take a lot for them to be shocked or fearful of a storm on a lake in which they had sailed on their entire lives. If anyone understood what a storm was and what a life-threatening storm was, it would be these fishermen. They, they weren't greatly surprised with this kind of weather. But they say, this is different. Their boat was swamped. Matthew's version says water was coming over the boat. Mark's version says water was breaking over the boat and was filling up. This storm, unlike maybe any storm in their life on this lake, their whole life produced a cry for help. And it wasn't just for one disciple. Look in your text. The word is they. It was plural. 
They went to Jesus. They went to wake Jesus up. It was chaotic. People say there are 12 to 20 folks on this sailing vessel. And they're screaming, Jesus, wake up. Luke's version says, Master, Master. Matthew's version says, Lord, Lord. Mark's version says, teacher, teacher. And the first thing the skeptic says is, see, you can't trust the Bible. It doesn't say the whole thing. No, 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 no. That's three different persons' versions of multiple people coming to Jesus. If me and five people came to someone and were trying to tell them the same thing, get up, we may... One person may call the person John, that's his name. I may call him Spanky. I may say, homeboy, get up. Another guy say, homeboy. Another guy say, I don't care what your name is, get up. That's what's happening here. Everyone is screaming in their own words to get Jesus to wake up. The disciples had passed the point where their personal know-how and knowledge was sufficient. They had passed the point where they thought they were in control. Chaos is everywhere as they bob like a cork in the lake. These experienced fishermen knew they were, there was no human way out. I want us to, I want us to throw away the idea I want us to get this out of our heads that these disciples came to Jesus as he was asleep on a cushion and sort of nudged him. Uh, Jesus, uh, excuse me a minute. I know you're very tired and had a hard day and we hate to bother you, but could you just wake up for a few minutes and we'll get you right back to sleep, give you a sleeping pill. Like this isn't the scene. Like that's how I think we read this in Sunday school. Mark's version says, no, they were stunned by his indifference to their circumstances. Read Mark's version. How could he sleep during this tragic event? The words are, don't you care? Don't you care? Don't you care that we're going to drown? Folks, if that isn't reminiscent of me and every Christian I know in a storm is the first thing out of our mouths. Don't you care? You say you love me. Really? They had seen him have power over demons, power over disease, power over death, power over creatures, but he can't handle the wind and the waves. But Jesus sleeps. This is the calm during the storm. It perfectly suits the Lord of the universe to strengthen the weak faith of his followers in a storm. The Lord uses the storm to both expose them to themselves and to expose them to himself. The storm surprised the disciples, but it didn't surprise Jesus. It could not surprise the one who knows whenever sparrow dies. It could not surprise the one that knows the exact number of hairs on every person's head in the universe. 
It could not surprise the one who researches nothing. He never has nor will use Google. And it is ironic that fishermen are appealing to a carpenter to get them out of a storm, and he's the one that's never owned a boat. What they did know is that they needed a divine intervention to save them. They knew this was way beyond them, folks. And what they did know was that only God can control the wind and the sea. What they did know is some Old Testament verses like Psalm 95, the sea is his for he made it. Psalm 89, 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. What they did know is Psalm 107 that says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in the evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. They knew only God. If they're going to live, there's one cry. It is to God because only he controls the wind and the waves. Made me think of a question. Maybe weird. Does Jesus need to speak to a lake? Does the sea have ears to hear? No. He speaks to those in a boat. He speaks to the disciples so that they might know he is the Lord and sovereign of all. Jesus says the Lord of the storm is also, think about it, the eye of the storm. And in that he is their only hope. So I want to ask you two questions this morning. The first question is, how would you grade the, the disciples' faith in the midst of the storm? A, B, C, D, E, F, add pluses and add minuses. How would you grade them? Just think about it. Write it down on your sheet. Give them a grade. It's always fun to sort of look at somebody else and, I mean, it's a little fun in an evil kind of way, right? <laughs> Look at someone else's failure and says, yeah, C minus, D plus. Now, the second question is not as fun. How would you grade yourself the last time a serious storm broke out on top of you? As I thought about that question, I thought about about three years ago, and I've mentioned this a little bit up front, uh, after six or eight doctor's visits and ending up uh, with the lead internal surgeon, uh, 
colon surgeon uh, at Vanderbilt. You know, I, I knew I was, I, I knew there was potential trouble when doctors keep looking at you going, I'm going to send you to so-and-so, right? And then I end up after about six of those with the lead person at Vanderbilt. Um, and she looked me in the eye and said, we're going to do an MRI, but this is what I think. I'm eat up with cancer in my lower abdomen region. And uh, you know what? D minus was overwhelmed with incredible panic and fear. It surprised me. But I, the Lord exposed my faith. Not that I would live or die. Wasn't afraid to die. I didn't want to die right now. <laughs> and what it did to me internally was surprising. He used that because one of the things coming out of that, I said, Lord, when that day comes, I actually found out, obviously, I don't have cancer. I just had a, like a part ovary or something down there. Um, <laughs> I always say that's why I cry so much. Right? I gotta, yeah. um, but I did think coming out of that, I think the Lord wanted to teach me when that day comes, I so want you to be ready for it. Because it's going to come. Lastly, the calm after the storm. Verses 24b through 25. So the text tells us Jesus wakes up, <laughs> I love this, and rebukes the wind and the waves. Mark says, he says, peace be still. Literally the word, here's what Jesus means when he says he rebukes the winds and the waves. Jesus wakes up and says, hush, stop. Is that powerful? No theatrics, no effort. The wind and waves recognized the voice of their creator and they obeyed. The one who created the wind and the waves by the spoken word is the only one who can calm the wind and waves by that same spoken word. Just like diseases responded just like demons responded, just like death responded, just like the fish responded, the wind and waves responded to the, its creator. When the creator said, hush, shh, in a split second, Luke tells us it went calm. It's not that the wind died down, and then typically when the wind dies down after a massive storm, it takes hours for the waves. They keep rumbling and rolling. But the wind dies down and the water goes like glass, like a mirror, like you could look in the water and see your face in a split second after he said, shh. If you didn't know anything about Jesus except this account, 
you would know enough to trust him and know who he is, that he is God. Only God control, can control the wind and the waves. In a split second, with a simple hush, he stopped millions of horsepower of wind and waves surging. Luke's point here is simple but profound. Jesus is God. He says that to his listeners then, to the folks in the boat, and to you and I now, to everyone since this event. And please notice that Luke did not answer the question at the end when, when the disciples said, who is this that controls the wind and the waves? Luke didn't answer their question because it was so obvious. It's the same kind of obvious that Darwin should have seen and he refused to admit that there has to be a source behind creation. Think about this. Even with all our technology today, no one can control the wind and the waves. The laws of nature are Jesus' laws. Jesus smiles on his throne when he allows Newton all of his scientific discoveries. Because Jesus is the one who holds it together. And if you believe he is God, you must also believe all that he says is God. Jesus now turns to the disciples and says to them, where is your faith? Now, now let's give them a little grace, okay? You would think in light of all that they've seen of Jesus so far, that they would have believed him now. However, however, this is the first time that the situation has been personal. All the other miracles had to do with other people as they watched. Now it's their life on the line. Now it's them gasping for air. I thought about Acts 27. When you get a chance this weekend, go to Acts 27 and read. It's a phenomenal chapter in the book of Acts. Just write it down. Read that this week. It's about a storm and it's about a shipwreck. And Paul's on the ship to Rome to be tried in Rome as his ministry comes to an end and this huge storm comes up in the Mediterranean Sea and they are just going to go where the wind takes them. They have to pull up anchor, drop the sails, and they're about to crash, honestly, on the northern rocks of Africa, which were known in that day as the graveyard of ships. 14 days at sea. All going to die. Paul writes very specifically, 276 of these people were on the boat. And there were three days and they never saw the stars or the sun. It was so bad. And here's what Paul does. <laughs> Paul says, yo, y'all need to eat some food. You're not going to die. You need to eat some food though because we're in for a tough time and you're going to need the energy in order to make it through this time. 
As I think about that story, I think, how is Paul's response different from these disciples in Luke chapter 8? And here's the difference. Paul had had many situations where he was on the brink of death. And he had learned over time to trust in Jesus. Paul knew what these disciples at this point did not know. This is called old faith. This is called somebody walking with Jesus for 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. This is called gray-haired faith. Paul knew that nothing would happen to him that is outside of God's care and purpose. Yes, Christians drown, folks. But they never drown until it fits in the purposes of God. Jesus is the Lord of the storms and he uses storms to both chastise us and to increase our faith. We are all about to go in a storm. Think about this with me. We're all going through our storm or we're all about to get out of a storm. If you want to summarize life, there's three phrases right there. And for those of you who are young and have had no storms, Write those down. If I've ever said anything truer, I don't know what it is. And guaranteed, here's what I want to tell us this morning. Jesus is no longer asleep. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He never naps. He never checks out. He never flips on the TV channel to watch sports. He never dozes off. He is fully awake and is at work to grow us in our trust of him and our joy in him in the midst of every storm. Here's the reality. Disciples were not only afraid in the storm, they were maybe even more afraid after the storm. Did you notice that in the text? Because they are now in the presence of someone who has calmed the storm. They are in the presence of God. The identity of Jesus is becoming so clear to them. He's just now not another option on the spiritual smorgasbord, folks. He is God. And so the question is, is it more fearful to have a storm outside of the boat or to have the creator of the universe in the boat? As I say that, I want to leave us with three practical things at faith because that's what Jesus says in light of the power I've demonstrated. Will you trust me? Will you place your faith in me? Not only salvific faith, but day-to-day faith. So three things I think that we need to hear about faith. One is faith is fundamental for all Christ's followers. This short story without the gritty details is so that the importance of faith can stand out in Luke's gospel. Jesus wanted them to trust him and instead they doubted his care for them. Folks, take that home and swallow it. That's us. Trust in Jesus is that in which he delights By faith, we are saved from our sins. By faith, we walk with Jesus. And by faith, without faith, it's impossible to please so God. Oh, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. 
Secondly, faith is based on evidence. There's more evidence that Christ rose from the dead than Napoleon Bonaparte lived. The Old Testament and New Testament is reliable. Folks, this is not fairy tale stuff. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us this man Jesus lived and is alive. And I'll tell you, the greatest evidence is the hundreds of millions. And who knows how many of the testimonies of the saints over the last 2,000 years about this man Jesus personally working in your life. There's evidence here. Question is, there was evidence for Darwin too, but he refused to believe it because ultimately he wanted to be his own God instead of bow down and worship the one true God. And then lastly, faith is proven by storms. Faith's absence or presence is revealed in the traumas of life. Apart from this storm, the disciples would have continued to appear and to feel as though they had control of the situation. Their panic on the late showed otherwise. James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us the purpose of storms is to test and deepen our faith. And here's what I know to be true about me. And here's what I know, therefore, to be true about you. In these storms, if we don't get it, God will continue to bring another storm, to allow another storm. He loves us so much that he is driving us to trust him. So that you and I might mature into the likeness of his son who endured the greatest storm of all, death on a cross. So this morning, I want you to take a few minutes to ask the question, so what? My goodness, we're all about to enter a storm, we're all going through a storm, or we're all about to get out of a storm. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. What does that look like for you? Take a minute to ask those questions.